This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today's program is a rebroadcast of a 2004 interview with NPR's Cokie Roberts, and it is part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. We're on the road at Litchfield Books down at Pauley's Island on US 17, a longtime friend of the journal. And with me today is Cokie Roberts, and she has been promoting her new book, Founding Mothers. And first of all, Miss Roberts, welcome to the journal. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. Let's go back a few years. You and I are about the same age. I'll just say go back a few years <laughs> to growing up in Louisiana. Uh, in New Orleans. Uh, your father was in politics almost from the time you could remember, wasn't you? Oh, before I could remember. Uh, my father was elected to Congress in 1940, and I was not born until the very end of 1943. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, my entire life has been spent with my parents in politics. Did you actually grow up in New Orleans, or did you, you grow up in Washington? We grew up half and half. Uh, we lived half year in, in New Orleans and half year in Washington, for a good long time, and then uh, at some point that was deemed uh, not very useful for our educations, and so we started going to school year-round in Washington and spending summers and Christmas in New Orleans. Of course, I guess in those early years, back before they air-conditioned the Capitol building, uh, Congress tried to get out of session. Well, you know, people say that, but the truth is uh, we were there. Uh, I I certainly remember many a Fourth of July in Washington, uh, and they used to be great. They were on the monument grounds, and uh, they had fabulous fireworks, which would now, of course, be considered completely illegal. Uh, but uh, so it was either there or on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi with all my cousins. Though those were the two choices for the Fourth of July. So there was more of Congress in Washington than you realize in the summer. Of course, you realize those fireworks that are illegal in Washington. You can probably get here in South That's Carolina. That's true, absolutely. <laughs> when my uh, when when we we've been coming to Pauley's Island since 1978. When my children were uh, seven and nine, uh, now they're here with their children. But um, the uh, fireworks were always an issue because my son was always sneaking them home. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned the Mississippi Gulf Coast, past Christiana Bay, St. Louis, where folks from New Orleans did go to for their summers. Well, not only that, but my uh, father's family actually is from there. Uh, my my grandmother and. Um, all of his siblings mm-hmm. uh, lived on a, a big family compound there and still do uh, in Long Beach, which mm-hmm. is between uh, Bay St. Louis and Biloxi. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my cousins, my my generation of cousins is all there. Mm-hmm. You dedicate the book partially to the Sisters of the Sacred Heart. Now, was that in Washington or in New Orleans? Both. Both. Uh, we went to, uh, my sister and I went to the Academy of the Sacred Heart in New Orleans, and we went to uh, Stone Ridge in Washington, which is a Sacred Heart School okay. there as well. And then you went to college at Wellesley? Yes. Your biography mentions that, and then it's just sort of a blank until you hit the <laughs> national scene. <laughs> but seriously, folks just would like to know a little bit about Cokie Roberts. Well, after school, I, I uh, went to Washington, and out of uh, all odd things, uh, the placement office in the college got me a job. And um, I went to work for a television production company, and um, uh, that company had been running a program in Washington for many years uh, called Teen Talk, which I had been on as a teenager, actually, uh, and they were ready to replace it. And so they put on a program called uh, Meeting of the Minds, which was a a sort of reverse meet the press of of foreign journalists discussing uh, issues of the day with a a prominent uh, U.S. representative Mm -hmm. of some kind. And uh, I was the moderator. I was 21 years old, and um, I was had a Sunday talk show. So you see, I just came full circle. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I would say having had a good liberal arts education at Wellesley, you were prepared to do anything. So. Well, I would agree with that. And, and heaven knows that's what I'm always saying to young people. Go get a good liberal arts education. Don't go take some journalism class someplace. You know, go, go learn. Your hair. <laughs> <laughs> go learn history. Go learn English. Go learn political science. Go learn economics. Mm. Go learn science. Mm. Go learn something. Mm. It's interesting. I have had CEOs tell me the same thing. Says we can teach people to do of business, or, but at the same time. They give all their money to the business school. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, have you pointed that out to them? <laughs> oh, uh, well, well uh, Darla Moore, who has given huge sums of money to the University of South Carolina, is a liberal arts major, but all of her money has gone to the business school. Huh. 
But she said the university asked for the money for the business school I first. See. I guess we liberal arts folks just didn't have our <laughs> hand out. <laughs> um, from that first show in, in right after college, it just sort of one thing went into the next. Well, I then uh, got married in 1966, and uh, to give you some sense of of the era, uh, my husband was at the New York Times, and uh, he was working in New York. And uh, of course, the New York Times had a Washington bureau, and. He presumably could have moved there and I could have kept my job, but it never occurred to either one of us for me not to just quit my job, move to New York. Mm -hmm. uh, that was what was done, and, mm -hmm. and neither one of us questioned it for a second. I made more money than he did, but still neither one of us questioned it. And um, so I moved to New York and um, started job hunting. Had a hard time finding a job. It was, uh, it was 1966, and people were still saying, even though it was illegal by then, uh, we don't hire women to do that. We don't hire women to deliver the news. Their voices are not authoritative enough. Uh, we don't hire women to be writers at the news magazines. Uh, we hire them to be researchers where they stay as researchers forever or leave the magazine and go be a writer someplace else. Uh, so it was, it was a bit of a haul finding a job. Well, you know, that's why your first job is, you know, sort of amazing because we are contemporaries and... Um, it was a woman-owned business. Oh. Ha-ha. <laughs> 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 because I, I was going to say is uh, my female contemporary, my wife included uh, the avenues. You could be a librarian or a school teacher. Right. If you were daring, you might be what was then called a stewardess. Right. But that was a little bit of a... That was, yes, that was not nice girls. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, today... My daughters do whatever they want to do. I am in, in We Are Our Mother's Daughters. My first book have a, a chapter on women scientists. And it starts with an anecdote where I was doing uh, some freelance work uh, for the American Association of Science, advanced, for the advancement of science and interviewing scientists for them for the radio. And um, I was doing an interview with a woman who had written a biography of a famous female scientist. And she was saying uh, that the, the person in question uh, had not been given her PhD at Johns Hopkins because they would not give a PhD to a woman. It just, you know, it was not <laughs> permissible. And a young woman scientist was coming in right after her to be interviewed by me. And that young woman didn't believe it. She just wouldn't believe the story. I mean, it was right there. This person had written a biography. We had all the data. But it was just so far removed from her experience that she just couldn't wrap her mind around it and believe it. Well, I have talked to women who were attorneys at the University of South Carolina Law School in the post-World War II era you know, being told by the dean, you know, why are you here to disrupt my right. young men? Right, exactly. Uh -huh. Disrupt them or take a place away from a man. <laughs> uh. Well, I hope you'll notice that yeah, I do notice. my entire technical <laughs> and professional crew is female. <laughs> well, in fact, journalism schools have become so uh, top-heavy with women that I'm afraid that, you know, the profession's going to get even worse pay. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it's 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 not it's not just journalism. That's true. In, in, Law in, school, medical school, it, uh, in fact, uh, and of course, colleges. Once they stop doing affirmative action for white men, which is what they were doing, uh, the colleges are now over fifty percent female. Well, that's actually our university. University here has been majority female for a number of years. Um, yeah, when they stopped doing affirmative action for white men. Well, actually, they, they, they quit. They quit that a long time ago because <laughs> the state's interested in in body count. <laughs> uh, other things too. This is Walter Edgar's journal. Today's program is a rebroadcast of a 2004 interview with NPR's Cokie Roberts, and it is part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's journal at 21. Well, let's talk about your book now. I want to get back to politics later, but I do want to talk about, about your book, Founding Mothers. And, um, it should be right up your alley. Oh, it is. And I, I want to tell you one story because we mentioned Mrs. Ellett, Mrs. William Ellett, uh, who did, Elizabeth Ellett, excuse me, who did uh, these wonderful collection of biographies of Revolutionary War heroines. There was a school teacher here in the earlier folks, and she was asking about sources, and, and Cokie said, this is a source you ought to get. Well, I cited it very heavily in my book on the Revolution, but I had a colleague at a university to the north of us, I will not mention, who took me to task for using Mrs. Ellett. And I said, why? 
And he said, well, you, you know, those women exaggerate. And I said, well, you know, in, in, in your in your life, in your life, as opposed to war stories, well, well, that, right? well, you're, you're, you're stealing my punchline. I said, sorry. Oh, but I, I said, you used stories taken down of, of male veterans at exactly the same time. And I said, I've been in the service and we boys sometimes exaggerate what we did. And I said, you won't get a life on the home front. You know, you've got this isolated woman, a woman on a homestead with one or two children, and that's it. And all of a sudden, the British Army, Bannister Tarleton, appears in the front yard. It's very seldom the men had to face anything that's quite right. like that. That's right. And that's, that's one of the things that was really striking to me in writing this book was how much alone the women were. Uh, the men were gone. They were either, you know, off in Philadelphia or they were at war or they were on diplomatic missions. Mm-hmm. And uh, the women were left to fend. And also to support the family, by the way, mm-hmm. because uh, the men weren't making any money. And um, what they had to go through for the cause of independence is really quite remarkable. Well, you've got a number of South Carolina heroines. And, and, and I do. And there, there are others you could use. And one of my favorites is a woman named Jane Black Thomas. And you didn't mention her, but she's in Ms. Ellett's book. And uh, since I'm over 60, I can say she was over 60, which in 1780 was advanced age. Right. She was from Spartanburg District, South Carolina. And her husband had been captured and was in prison at 96, and he got ill, and the word came, and so she went down to take care of him. Well, she heard wives down at the the stream washing clothes about the husbands were going on a raid to the Spartan district and eliminate the regiment up there. Well, this woman who was over 60 got on a horse, rode 50 miles through enemy-occupied territory to warn the Spartan regiment, which then ambushed the British. And as I tell folks this story, I said, all Paul Revere did was ride down a paved road saying the British are coming. (laughs) There are quite a few women like that in in the book. I'm sorry I missed her, but I do have Sybil Luddington and a few others who rode through the night, uh, going through enemy lines uh, to deliver messages. And it was quite remarkable what they did. Oh, it was. And Mrs. Ellett caught those stories. Right. Well, one of my favorite stories she caught was that of um, Nancy Hart, who was in Georgia, which, of course, was the Wild West. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And some loyalists came through. And um, she detained them for a while and then uh, took them out and shot them and, and <laughs> hanged a few. And, uh, and uh, when Mrs. Ellett went to do interviews uh, with her neighbors, Nancy Hart's neighbors, one of the neighbors said, that Nancy, she was a honey of a patriot, but a devil of a wife. <laughs> Well, by necessity, when you start quoting, I mean, we have the stories, for example, of of Nancy Hart and and uh, Dicey Langston and and Emily Geiger and what have you. Right. But when you started looking for papers, you'd necessarily be dealing with elite women. Well, and I I was actually. Uh, looking for elite women. There have been wonderful, as you know, uh, Walters, wonderful scholarly books written about everyday women in the 18th Mm -hmm. century. And there have been even popular books like A Midwife's Tale. Mm -hmm. Uh, But nobody, and it, it really shocked me, had really put together a book of the women who were influential to the founding fathers. There were biographies here and there of the individual women, There was no book that took this chronologically and started in the early 18th century, taking it through to the beginning of the new nation and showed the interweaving relationships among the women and also gave some sense of what their political influence was. Well, I think we can choose someone from the North and someone from the South. You can choose Abigail Adams and Eliza Lucas Pinckney because not only did they, in terms of their spouses, but also they literally raised the fathers who helped put the nation together. That's right. Their sons. Right. But uh, also, and also, bless them, they wrote. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and their writings were saved. So we are very lucky that way. Uh, but, um, but for so many, it was truly detective work. Um, Martha Washington destroyed her papers. Uh, and what's left is a, a compilation of, of very few letters. Mm-hmm. And um, Thomas Jefferson destroyed Martha Jefferson's correspondence, uh, uh, reportedly because he was so heartbroken. 
And um, well, no, wait, they, you're, you're, you're really giving me the eye there. <laughs> I just don't think that's what one does when one is heartbroken. No, you usually wrap them in ribbon. Yeah, in exactly. those days you would, and and right, and just save stick them. a few little you know dried flowers in there. And uh, and others just got lost along the way. You know, descendants uh, didn't think that they were particularly important or uh, worth keeping. So it was very hard to ferret them out. And even the ones that have been saved are often sitting in historical societies, uh, untranscribed, mm. and uh, very, very difficult to get access to. Well, reading 18th century correspondence is not like, easy. It's reading. It's like a foreign language. Well, I did clean it up for the for the readers, <laughs> uh, because I did think that was too hard. This mm. is not a book about 18th century writing. This mm. is a book about of stories and mm. stories about these women. So. Uh, I did clean up the the grammar and the spelling and uh, the the writing that way. But um, at the back of the book, I do have a few recipes um, just for points of connection, including uh, Harriet Pinckney Orie's uh, dressing a whole calf's head, which starts with boil the calf's head until the tongue peels, <laughs> which I just put there because it was too yucky not to. But it also includes uh, the recipe for the Franklin family's crown soap. And it is written by Jane Franklin Meekham, Benjamin Franklin's sister. And it is in the original. So you get some sense of, uh, of how hard it was. Well, let's talk about some of these ladies, if you don't mind. Well, um, I think we should stick with our South Carolina ladies. They were so great. Well, all right. Well, let's. <laughs> let's I'm for that. Except I, you mentioned Franklin, and um, oh, well, that's true. We he, do have he, to beat up on him a little. Ask because yeah, he doesn't yeah. come across too well in your <laughs> in your. Um, and I'm glad you did this because historians have known for a while, uh, not that they've questioned his patriotism, but. Some wondered in the early 1770s which side he was really going to come down on. No kidding. And and Esther Reed, who was a woman I knew nothing about. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that that's the other thing is here I am, somebody who's read extensively in American history, who covers American mm-hmm. government and goes back and reads debates mm-hmm. on the right to bear arms or yeah. freedom of religion or whatever. There were so many of these women I had never heard of. But she uh, was the wife of... Uh, Joseph Reed, who was governor of Pennsylvania, and she started and finished a fabulous fundraising drive for the soldiers Mm -hmm. in 1780 when, as you know, it looked like we were about to lose this war. But she was in England when Franklin was there, and her father was the agent for a lot of the colonies. Mm-hmm. And he he would report, you know, Franklin is sitting in these meetings waiting to see which way the wind is blowing. He's got his finger in the air, kind of like Bill Clinton. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> <laughs> Our- other politicians we might name. True enough. <laughs> who, who rule by poll. Right. So, right. Uh, for fun, I sometimes read these alternative histories. And several of them that deal with the revolution have um, Franklin making sure that there is no revolution. And as a consequence, he gets an, an earldom and his son gets all this land in the West. And, because it, and it's very plausible. Sure it is. Uh, in fact, when he left England... Uh, he the first time he was, or the second time, he was fully prepared to move back to England and bring his family with him. Deborah Reed Franklin had no interest in leaving Market Street, much less Philadelphia. Well, he certainly left her there for a long time. He sure did. Seventeen years he left her there, and she was left to run the postal service, uh, run the real estate ventures, and uh, the print shops, which were essentially franchises. And, of course, as you well know, uh, married women were not allowed to own property in the 18th century. So she's buying and selling property in his name when the whole world knows he's in England. (laughs) But she kept begging him to come home. And he wouldn't do it. And he only came home after she died because nobody else there to take care of the money. Right. He said, my wife, in whose hands I left the care of my affairs, died. So he had to go home. While he was in England, his uh, friends and neighbors felt that he was not sufficiently opposed to the Stamp Act, that he had sold out on the Stamp Act. And a mob rushed to the house, ready to raise it. Mm-hmm. And she had to defend the house with a gun. And he wrote and said, well done, Deborah." <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and then the way he treated his daughter. Not nice at all. His uh, daughter, Sally Franklin Beige, 
was in Philadelphia. The British, of course, occupied Philadelphia, and Patriot families had to flee. And, of course, prominent patriots like Franklin, who had signed the Declaration of Independence, had prices on their heads. They were traitors to the crown. And by this time, he was in France. And um, she wrote to him and said, don't worry, I got all your books out. I got all your papers out. And then I took the baby and ran. Uh, But she then had to escape several times. The Americans then came back into uh, Philadelphia, and they had a ball, a party, to, to celebrate the return. And she wrote to him in France, and, you know, he's out at Versailles dining with the king and queen. And she wrote to him and said, um, would he please send her some lace or some uh, feathers for her hair to wear to the party? And he wrote to her, if you wear your cambric ruffles as I do and take care not to mend the holes, they will come in time to be lace. Thanks, Ben. And feathers, my dear girl, may be had in America from every cock's tail. So I didn't really like him much after I finished writing. Well, I, I was, I, he also, um, for somebody given his own personal behavior, was very critical of, of, of the man she married. Oh, yeah. And then he complained about how much money her wedding was going to Right. That hasn't changed. Right. I found much that was recognizable. <laughs> you're, you're not a fan of Band, and I understand. I can understand that. Well, obviously, he did very important things. I will give him that. When he came home from England, he did help craft and sign the Declaration of Independence. And when he went to France, he forged the alliance that won the war. So I'll give him that. And you know, the kite thing was cool, but the uh, but he was not a good husband yeah. and father. When the women raised the money for the soldiers, George Washington was not particularly gracious. Well, Washington had a terrible time with this because, on the one hand, he knew he needed the women. And on the other hand, it made him nuts that he needed the women. Mm -hmm. And I guess most people don't realize thousands of women and children went to war Mm -hmm. Uh, for poor women they couldn't stay home. There was they had didn't have the wherewithal to survive uh, with their husbands gone, and they joined the army and they foraged for food. They did some nursing, some sewing. Uh, they would bring water onto the battlefield of where we get Molly Pitcher, mm-hmm. and um, they were paid. They were paid a pittance, but they were paid. And um, Washington issued general order after general order saying, you know, women and children at the rear, women and children go with the baggage. I have a mental image. They were probably dogs, too. You know, I mean, there's just motley crew. He kept having to issue these orders. So clearly they weren't paying any attention to him. He started a, a rapid readiness team. And his general order there just says, only take women who can move fast. He doesn't say, <laughs> leave the women behind. So he knew he was, he was needed the women and, and was somewhat stuck with them. But when Esther Reed uh, raised the money for the troops, uh, she wanted the money to go for something special that Congress was not supposed to provide. And he wanted it to go for shirts. She fought him and said, how about giving them hard currency? Because, of course, they were getting paid in worthless paper money. And he was horrified. He said, first of all, they'll drink it. They'll use it to buy alcohol. Secondly, they'll get used to hard currency and hate the paper money even more. So she finally gave up, and then she died. Some, I think, dysentery came through and got her. And Sally Franklin Bache took up the end of the drive. What the women finally did was give in to Washington and make the shirts. But the way they made them special was that each woman embroidered her name onto the shirt that she made. So the soldiers knew they were getting something special from the women of America. This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today's program is a rebroadcast of a 2004 interview with NPR's Cokie Roberts, and it is part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. How did you come across Eliza Lucas Pinckney? I don't know. Someone must have mentioned her to me. And then I have a friend in Washington, uh, Pi Pinckney Friendly, and um, I asked her if she had any of the Pinckney papers or anything. And she had a book 
the Francis Lee Williams book, mm-hmm. um, and and it had footnotes about Eliza Pinckney's letter book, mm-hmm. and uh, and also my friend Pi directed me to her cousin Elise Pinckney mm-hmm. at the South Carolina. Historical mm-hmm. Society. So then I started finding in footnotes other references to other Pinckney materials, mm-hmm. and so that's what that footnotes were were my sources mm-hmm. for much because that was the only place I could find things often. Well, you know, one of the things that and the way you treated Eliza Lucas isn't in, in our state. She is almost a larger than life character, but in in, in many ways. The the myths, the legends, they're all true. I mean, that's she, right. She she she's she is a she, truly remarkable woman. You know, as a young teenager, she really does manage the plantations. She Sig- really does introduce a new crop into the state, and and tries a bunch of others. You know, she mm-hmm. wants to start a, 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 a when she wants to start a fig export mm-hmm. business and a lumber business, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I, I keep thinking, you know, of the sixteen year olds I know. And how terrified I am that they get driver's licenses. And the idea that she was managing three plantations uh, is just incredible. She was a very determined young woman. I mean, I love the letter to her father about the proposed suitors, Mm -hmm. you know, proposed husbands, where she basically just totally ignores him and says, you know, it's not going to happen, essentially. You know, forget it, Dad. And, uh, you know, that was quite remarkable for an 18-year-old to write. uh, I mean, because legally her father could have committed her to marriage. Um, Of course he could have. He may have known what he had. I think he clearly (laughs) did. Because obviously we don't have his letter to her, but her letter to him after she married Charles Pinckney uh, he had obviously written to her and said something along the lines of, now, now, dear, now that you have been managing everything, now you've got to let your husband manage. Don't get in his way. Because she wrote back and said, oh, don't worry, Dad. I'll stay in my sphere. Yeah, I yeah, know sure. My, yeah. <laughs> uh, but Charles Pinckney, luckily for her, did not want her to. Well, he, he had encouraged her education because she had been a friend of Charles and his wife right. before. And his niece was her good friend, Mary and, Bartlett. And, and Charles was lending her books from his library. Well, and then there was that wonderful letter where she said that one of the old biddies in the neighborhood said she was way too smart for her own good and that she was never going to catch a husband that way again. What changes? Nothing. And uh, and that the woman threatened to throw her copy of Plutarch's Lives in, in, into the fireplace. Uh, yes. <laughs> because it would drive her mad if she read you know, <laughs> she read such things. <laughs> she is she is really a treat. But then, of course, she raised her two sons, Charles she, Coatsworth and, and Thomas, who became founding fathers. And and Harriet was also quite yeah. a, a force in her own right. But yes, the two sons, of course, became uh, generals in the in the Continental Army, and then uh, Charles Coatsworth, of course, went off to write the Constitution, mm-hmm. and Thomas was governor and ratified, mm-hmm. and and then they both uh, held uh, diplomatic positions mm-hmm. that were terribly important. But you know, um, Thomas, of course, was captured, and uh, while he was captured, uh, his mother-in-law, Rebecca Mott, was uh, run out of her home by mm-hmm. the British. And as you know the story, but probably not everyone does, the the Americans under Francis Marion and, and Light Horse Harry Lee came to her and said, we're sorry about this, Rebecca, but or Mrs. Mott, but we have to burn down your house because we have to get the British out of there and capture them and march to Charleston. And she said, "Not, not to worry. You know, you're, you're here. Go, go for it. And here are here are the weapons with which to burn down my house." Uh, and she had trick arrows that, when they uh, hit upon impact, they burst into flame. So she provided the ammunition for the destruction of her own home. And uh, they smoked the British out pretty quickly and didn't have to burn it to the ground. And then the British generals and the American generals and Mrs. Mott all sit down to dinner together. And um, Harry Lee wrote in his um, in his memoir, he says, The deportment and demeanor of Mrs. Mott gave a zest to the pleasures of the table. Conversing with ease, vivacity, and good sense, she obliterated our recollection of the injury she had received. <laughs> Her house had been burned out. She was probably also serving them the dinner. <laughs> so she is a great uh, South Carolina patriot. I'd like to leave the book in a few minutes and, and talk about your current work in, in Washington. 
Well, I, I always ask authors this. Your favorite character? Well, I really liked them all, and I'm not. I, I know, I'm not. I'm, 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 I know, I'm terrible I know. at best, worst, all that. But I, there were a couple of people that I didn't know anything at all about who I came to like enormously. Okay. Um, Sally J mm-hmm. was certainly one of those. Uh, Sarah Livingston J, the daughter of the first Patriot Governor of New Jersey, William mm-hmm. Franklin, having been the last Loyalist Governor <laughs> of New Jersey. And uh, she was one of a bevy of fabulous girls in that family. And as a teenager, she married John Jay, who was at that point a politician in New York and working on the New York Constitution. And of course, the British were occupying New York. And she kept having to escape the British and uh, would write these very funny letters saying, whoops, here they come again, wherever I am, they seem to show up. And... um, and then she learned that John Jay was president of the Continental Congress, which was the highest office in the land. She learned about it by reading the newspapers, and she was none too pleased. She said, there is a post, you know. <laughs> and uh, then she uniquely went along on a diplomatic mission. And uh, Jay was assigned to Spain. Mm. She left her little boy with her parents, and she and Jay set sail for Spain, which was very, very dangerous uh, because, as you know, the British were intercepting these mm-hmm. ships and trying to capture prominent patriots. As they did Henry Lawrence. As they did Henry Lawrence, who was in the Tower of London for about a year, and his daughter, Martha Lawrence Ramsey, another great South Carolina woman, uh, was very instrumental in getting him out. Of the tower. So um, Sally and Jay were off on the ship where they weren't intercepted, but they were shipwrecked. And uh, they limped into Martinique, uh, where she wrote this wonderful letter home to the family. And then uh, they got another ship, ended up in Cadiz, had this miserable overland trip to Madrid. And of course, she was pregnant because they were all always pregnant. The men would come home just long enough, you know. Kitty, and <laughs> Kitty Green. <laughs> poor Kitty Green. And uh, Kitty Green, we should say, the wife of Nathaniel Green, who loved to go to camp and flirt with the soldiers and, and the other officers and, and just knew every time she did, she'd be pregnant. <laughs> but uh, so Sally... Uh, writes home about this trip overland, and she's at one point in a room next to cows, which she said wouldn't have been so bad, except they all had cowbells on and moved around all night long. (laughs) They got to Madrid. They were not recognized by the Spanish government. The Bourbons were playing games, the French and Spanish. Again, some things don't change. And um, her baby died, and she was heartbroken. And uh, it was really a miserable time for them. And still she wrote the feistiest, funniest, most patriotic, brave letters home. And she always had this great sense of humor. And so she'd write about European politics and American politics and how they compared. And and then she, she wrote to her sisters and said, but you know, whither my pen are you taking me? Am I not a lady and writing to women about politics? Mm-hmm. Come quick, ye fashions, to my assistance. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was getting a, a wonderful scholar at Columbia where the J papers are housed was sending me unpublished Sally J letters up until the last week that I was writing. Um, and her correspondence continued to be just something mm. fabulous to read. And it gives you a real sense of the tremendous political influence of these mm. women. Well, I, I guess women that I did not know, I had heard of her, but uh, I did not know anything about Kitty Green or about Mrs. Knox. Right, Lucy Knox, who was the fa- very fat uh, Abigail Adams Smith, uh, the daughter of John and Abigail Adams, said, she's so fat, it's frightening. But <laughs> There's gossip here, too. But I will tell you a good South Carolina story about Kitty Green, uh, because, uh, of course, Nathaniel Green took over the Southern Command. And... Um, she came down uh, to camp in South Carolina, and then he negotiated the British evacuation of Charleston, Charlestown, and um, they, the American army, went in. And after the you know initial joy, everybody was just hanging around, and the South Carolina legislature was getting unhappy and being asked to pay for them, and they were all just telling old war stories. And um, she wrote home about one of the war stories that that they were telling um, here, and it was about uh, Green and John Rutledge, who was governor of South Carolina. 
and they had been fighting in North Carolina. They had lost a battle. They had gotten into some hovel to just get away from the night. Uh, and were spending the night there, and they were each thrashing around and started accusing each other of being the world's worst bedmate. And she wrote, they both denied the charges which put them upon examining who was at fault, and behold, the general of the Southern Department and the governor of the rich state of South Carolina, and how shall I write it? A hog who thought perhaps he had a right to take a place with a defeated general had all crept in one bed together. (laughs) Now, as you know, it ended up that Kitty Green was instrumental in the invention of the cotton gin. Absolutely. So um, she was also a very interesting woman. Let's talk about what you're doing in Washington now. I'm I'm covering politics and and, uh, to some degree at a distance Congress uh, because the Capitol is so depressing these days. The security just makes you crazy and the partisanship makes you even crazier. But um, uh, let's stop and talk about that a minute because, again, being the the child of congresspersons, father and mother, uh, you you grew up experiencing something quite different. Very different. The the lines between the parties were, they were there, but there there was not this hostility. Nothing like it. And in fact, I was interviewing Jerry Ford not too long ago, and he was minority leader of the House when my father was majority leader of the House. And he said to me, you know, Cokie, Dad and I would get in a cab and we'd go downtown to the press club or someplace and have a debate. And we'd talk about what we were going to debate all the way down. And then we'd get back and we'd have our debate and we'd, you know, we'd just hurl things at each other. And then we'd get back in the cab and go back to the Capitol. And he said, and it's not that that the debate was fake. Quite the contrary. We felt very differently about the issues and had very different approaches to them. But that didn't mean that we weren't friends. And that's just gone. Well, I think one of the things that sort of almost got passed over uh, during President Reagan's funeral, he and Tip O'Neill. Right. I actually kept talking about it because every political story about Reagan in Washington Mm -hmm. included the words Tip Mm O'Neill. And in fact, uh, Ken Duberstein, who was the last Reagan chief of staff, was saying, you know, Tip would come for lunch Mm -hmm. and the two of them would just sit there and tell one story after another uh, until, you know, it got to be three o'clock in the afternoon and all of their aides are saying, Mr. President, Mr. Speaker, you you know, you've got to go. And they were having much too much fun. Don't see that happening now. No. Uh, George Schultz was on ABC the morning of the funeral, and we were sitting talking before he went on, and he said, you know, civility, is that's what's gone. And then when I went into the cathedral for the service, we were in considerably before the service began, so there was a lot of milling around mm-hmm. and visiting. And uh, there were people from, of course, both political parties, and it was also the you know people like me who were invited were invited by Nancy Reagan. I mean, this was the press being invited mm-hmm. by the politicians, mm-hmm. and um, all of that is gone. Well, it makes governing a lot more difficult. Sure does. And it's not just at the national level; it's at the state level. Some things are personal because these, as I said, it used to be that people were friends; that they would see each other in the evenings, uh, they would be in Washington for long periods of time together. Now the members tend to go home from Thursday till Tuesday, mm-hmm. and uh, so they don't socialize with each other. The families are not in Washington at school together, uh, as we were, where the families were all involved in the PTA or we all went to church together or whatever. And um, so there's that level. Um, There's, of course, the shrillness of the media with talk radio and all of that. But uh, beyond that, there are now structural problems, which is that the districting has gotten to be so rigid in drawing lines where only a homogeneous population is inside those lines that um, members have no incentive to talk to anyone who disagrees with them, ever. They don't even meet them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that uh, there's none of the shading of the Mm -hmm. blacks and whites. And again, that's not just the national level. It's also true at the state level. There's so many safe districts that... uh, uh, Don't have to listen to the voters. That's right. That's right. And all the single-member districts have certainly brought diversity 
in terms of party and, and ethnicity. Um, it used to be when you ran, for example, on a countywide basis, you had to appeal to lots of different right. voters. So you couldn't just, but if you just had your neighborhood or somebody said, I just got to talk to 12,000 people. That's all I have to deal well, with. Well, let me give you an example in Louisiana, uh, the district outside of New Orleans in Jefferson Parish, which is David Duke represented in the state legislature. Mm -hmm. But when Bob Livingston had that district, it was initially about a third African-American. And what did that mean? It meant that Bob Livingston voted for Martin Luther King holiday, open housing, mm -hmm. uh, all kinds of things uh, that he could tell his uh white supremacist supporters, uh, he could say to those people, look, I got to do this. I've got, you know, look at my district, even though in his case, it was something he wanted to do. Um, once the district got redrawn so that it was lily white, um, it made it much tougher for him to t make votes mm -hmm. like that. This is Walter Edgar's journal. Today's program is a rebroadcast of a 2004 interview with NPR's Cokie Roberts, and it is part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. I noticed that the congressional district that both your parents represented now, New Orleans now has an African-American congressman. Right. My mother was the last white member to represent a majority black district. Mm -hmm. It was redistricted in um, 1982, and uh, she didn't have a challenge uh, in 1984 uh, from a prominent African-American, but she won pretty handily. Mm -hmm. How many years together did the Boggs family? Set 50. 50 years? <laughs> so you can see how I feel about term limits. <laughs> <laughs> it's right up there in strong category. <laughs> well, what else would you make besides the, the lack of civility? And I think that's infecting all aspects of, of society. I do, too. Just look at the bumper stickers. They're so rude. Uh, are the T-shirts. Right. But which, the language you hear in public, for example. Well, uh, I mean, this is where I start to sound like the oldest fogey on earth, but, you know, if the shoe fits. When we were in college, a Lady Chatterley's lover was not allowed into the United States of America. Uh, one of the most daring things you could do was to sneak it in across the border. And that gives you some sense of the difference. Uh, the language was considered inappropriate. And now people use that kind of language on the air. They might I, be going to jail for it these days, but... Uh, <laughs> well, I have told my daughters that some of the women's magazines they bring home are far racier than Playboy was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, when I was in my <laughs> no undergraduate kidding. days, <laughs> from the illustrations to certainly the, the story. advice, yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> my favorite Playboy story remains, however, the day that the United States House of Representatives was debating whether it was appropriate for uh, federal funds to provide Playboy in Braille for libraries. And the <laughs> <laughs> Braille pay Playboy is brought onto the floor of the House of Representatives. They all go tearing down to read it, not really realizing what Braille is, you know? It's, it's brown butcher paper with holes in it. <laughs> they were deeply disappointed. Did they pass it? Well, I, I can't remember what happened to the legislation. I was laughing so hard. They're all feeling it, you know? <laughs> Probably appropriate. Something. Oh, gosh, it was funny. <laughs> I tell you, though, we, uh, we do miss... Strom Thurmond, and we will miss Fritz Hollings. Um, you, you have had uh, members of the Senate who are real people uh, with real character. Mm. They're characters, but they have character mm -hmm. as well. And we, we are so into the blow-dried generation that uh, we will we will sorely miss having the children well, there. They are both great South Carolina figures, uh, regardless of how you feel about the politics. This has nothing to do with politics. It, it, has, it has to do with the individuals. And I can remember, and this was right after my, my book on the state came out in, in 1998, and the senator asked me to come to Washington. He knew I was coming to Washington for which, which senator? Thurmond. Uh-huh. And he wanted me to take me to lunch. And this was when people began to talk about, well, it's Senator Thurmond, you know, all there, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of mm -hmm. thing. He, just he and I went to have lunch in the Senate dining room. And during the course of the, the lunch, Senator Kennedy 
oh gosh, I'm drawing from New York that uh, Moynihan. Moynihan, each came up with a different question about a bill before the senators' committee, and it was just right. like this. When he was dealing with the Senate business, he was he was right there and he was sharp. And yes, he had the grip of my arm to walk the hall. Yeah, well, try it as a girl. Uh, <laughs> I actually went to Europe with my parents when I was 13 uh, on something called the Interparliamentary Union. And Gene and Strom Thurmond also were there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Excuse they, me, for, for our younger listeners, Gene Crouch Thurmond was the senator's first wife. First wife. And um, a lovely, lovely mm-hmm. woman. And we, um, we then, they laid on a trip to Dublin for the day. We were in London. And uh, the only people who decided to go were Strom Thurmond, Estes Kefauver, and me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and years later, I said to my mother, what were you thinking? <laughs> and she said, well, nothing happened, did it? And I said, no. And she said, well, see, so that's fine. And he and I remained great friends for the rest of his life. He could still tell a fabulous story. And, and Senator Hollings. Oh, yes. Uh, his quips would sometimes get him into, into I trouble. I know, but they're so fabulous. There was, there was a wonderful day on uh, this week when Sam Donaldson was asking him about uh, having suits made in Hong Kong or something, and he said, I got my suits made about where you get that rug made, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any Washington... Are there other characters left in Washington? Anybody who's not blow-dried? Well, there are people like Dan Inouye and and Ted Stevens. uh, you know, the older people who are very substantial people. Mm-hmm. And certainly Donald Rumsfeld is not blow-dried. Mm-hmm. You're right about a, a sameness. So when I, I hear a younger member of Congress begin to, uh, for example, Lindsey Graham has surprised some people, in the la- particularly in the last six months of his probing. He's not a character, uh, but he's not blow-dried either. No, and he's an interesting, he's, an, he's, he's a useful member of the Senate. Yeah. We're about to run out of time. Is there anything you'd like to add for our listeners before we sign off? Just how much I love to be here and uh, how welcoming the state of South Carolina always is. Well, we're delighted to have you here. And since South Carolina is a small world, on my way down here to, to meet with you, uh, I was halfway to Sumter battling traffic, and my, t- my cell phone rang, and it was John Napier calling from Washington saying, I understand you're going to be speaking to Kofi Roberts today. <laughs> now, I don't, it is a small world. I don't, know, I don't know where. He heard that. He heard that. But uh, I said, yes, John, it's true. It is just a, a small world here, and we're delighted that you spend part well, of when, your time. When, uh, when I go to Mass here in, in Pauley's Island, I often run into um, – uh, the mayor of of Charleston, Joe, Joe Riley. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, your politicians are here with the folk. Koki Roberts, ABC journalist, NPR journalist, author. In this case, I want to say uh, resurrector of our founding mothers. Thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Thanks so much for having me. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. One never knows what's going to happen when you go into an interview. And I'll be honest, I didn't know exactly what to expect when Koki Roberts' publicist arranged for us to do this interview. But one of the things that really was delightful, and I think you could tell I enjoyed this interview, was that uh, despite being a Washington personality, nationally known correspondent and all of that stuff, You don't have to scratch very hard to find Cokie Roberts, who is a New Orleans girl. And um, as she said on one occasion, when we talked about Abigail Adams and her comments that were sort of acerbic, she just said, well, you know, Walter, she's not one of us, Uh, meaning she was from up north and she wasn't uh, a good Southerner. It was interesting to find out, first of all, about why she's Cokie. She was born Corinne, that's her given name, but her brother couldn't pronounce Corinne, and all he could say was Koki, and the childhood nickname stuck, and that's what she goes by as her professional name. And you might also notice on the air, when we talk about her hometown, she's very careful to pronounce it the way a native does. It's not New Orleans or New Orleans, it's New Orleans. She's lost most of that New Orleans accent, 
that old accent that was shared by people all along the Gulf Coast. It's pretty much gone, but except for the way she pronounces her hometown. She was brutally honest about politics today and the blow-dried set, as she described them. She didn't quite say that certain people's brains were probably fried by too much hairspray and uh, hair drying, but it was pretty close. But it was just a, a real good, wonderful way for me to spend a Friday afternoon. And I'll be honest, I didn't think it was going to happen. I drove to Polly's Island, you know, three hours down, an interview, and then three hours back, and it was going to be a long day for me. But hey, it had been a long day for Cokie Roberts. And she never said it on the air. She didn't ask for sympathy, but she is recovering from breast cancer. And this made about the sixth hour that she was on, had to be on before an audience, and she could not have been more gracious. It's quite clear that her mama, Lindy Claiborne Boggs, reared her well. This is Walter Edgar. Join us next week for more of The Journal. This is Walter Edgar. Today's program was a rebroadcast of a 2004 interview with NPR's Cokie Roberts, and it is part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.